Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. Before we get started, I wanted to remind everyone that we do have two event series. The first one focuses on big data and data science. It's called Strata Data Conference, and you can find that at strataconf.com. The second conference focuses on AI. It's called the O'Reilly Artificial Intelligence Conference, which you can find at o'reillyaicon.com. In this episode of the O'Reilly Data Show, I sat down with Michael Friedman, CTO of Timescale and Professor of Computer Science at Princeton University. When I first heard that Mike and his collaborators were building a time series database, my reaction was, don't we have enough of those already? The early incarnation of Timescale was in fact focused on IoT, and it was while building tools for IoT that Mike and his team realized that uh, we do in fact need a time series database, at least out in the open source. Specifically, they wanted a database that could easily support complex queries and the sort of real-time applications many have come to associate with streaming platforms. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Mike Friedman of Timescale and Princeton University, welcome to the Data Show. Thanks for having me. So looking at your background, I noticed that you got your PhD from Courant and uh, as a former applied mathematician. That is uh, that is one of the best places for applied <laughs> Except I was doing computer science, so I don't know if I get to claim that. <laughs> but it is part of the Courant Institute at NYU. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. And so actually, you've done a lot of things in the networking space, it looks like, right? Uh, I generally consider myself a distributed systems person. So that goes from you know networking to, in the beginning, my PhD, I worked a lot in peer-to-peer systems and CDNs, content delivery networks. Um, now, lately, I've been doing more kind of classic distributed systems, storage systems, databases, whatnot. And you even, uh, I think, contributed a chapter in an old O'Reilly book on peer-to-peer. Yeah, I was, uh, that was back in 2000. And the funny thing is, when I was writing that, I was actually studying at Oxford. And so I was writing it in like the third, in a computer lab, in the third floor of like a 15th century tower. So it was this total dichotomy between like these Linux machines and then walking up this twisty staircase that was, you know, constructed. So when you sword fight in the tower, you'd be in the right direction. So uh, where were you when the first uh, set of uh, N- uh, NoSQL databases started to come out? I, I guess around the Dynamo paper and Bigtable. Yeah, so I was, uh, you know, it was towards the end of my uh, PhD. You know, I worked on, you know, my PhD was itself on this thing called a a content delivery network, a peer-to-peer CDN, actually called Coral or Coral CDN. Uh, You know, we designed it to, at the time, was, was, you know, the very popular website Slashdot to so-called stop the Slashdot effect, where, you know, somebody would link to a random website and all of a sudden it overcome that website. And so we basically built this like open network of contributing uh, web proxies that were all linked together with uh, what is known as distributed hash tables or DHTs. And the reason I mention that is it was actually interesting about the effect that um, academic work sometimes ultimately has on industry. If you look at the history of the NoSQL database, you know, DynamoDB was pretty important in that. And, you know, Werner, Vo- Werner Vogels at uh, Amazon actually came from Cornell, where he used to be a research scientist. And from there, he was kind of at this first stage of these distributed databases or DHTs that use gossiping. And you could you could kind of draw the direct connection between all this work that was happening in academia in DHTs 
to what ultimately became the architecture of these NoSQL databases. Fast forward to today, and you you started a company called IOBeam, now called Timescale. And I believe, at least in the beginning, that you guys were targeting Internet of Things. Mm-hmm. And then at some point you realized, well, actually, uh, we need a time series database. And uh, after you built it, you, you then realized, actually, people are more interested in our time series database. You know, that's, I think that's often the story of uh, startups, right? You build something because you need it, and then you realize that you're not the only one, and you think other people will need it as well. Which actually uh, begs the question, um, people who are listening to this will probably say, well, why do we need another time series database? Uh, aren't there a lot of uh, time series databases out there? Because uh, if you Google time series database, uh, not only will you see a... Uh, a bunch of time series databases, but there are multiple blog posts summarizing the time series database landscape. Sure. So it it was this interesting thing, and you know we didn't, you know we have an interesting story here as well, in that we uh, initially were developing a platform to collect and store and analyze IoT data, uh, and and certainly a lot of IoT data is time series in nature. You have sensors that are collecting uh, in the future, you know, volumes of data that we never saw before. Um, we actually started using a NoSQL database, and it didn't work for us. And we found ourselves struggling between, you know, the reason a lot of people adopted NoSQL was they thought, you know, it offered scale in the ways that, you know, more traditional relational databases did not. Uh, yet they often gave up a lot of the, you know, rich query language, uh, optimized, you know, complex queries, joins, uh, ecosystem that you you get in these more traditional relational databases. and we were starting a NoSQL, and what happens, you know, customers who are using our platform kept wanting all these ways to query the data, and we couldn't do it with the existing NoSQL database we were using. It just didn't support that t- those type of queries. And so we ended up building one, uh, in fact, based on top of Postgres, but kind of architecting Postgres in a very particular way for time series workloads. And we came to, you know, realize that, in fact, this is not just a problem limited to us. We think that there's somewhat an important space still in the market that you know people either you know use a vanilla relational database, which does have scaling problems, or they're asked to choose and, and go to something like NoSQL again because a lot of the time series data uh, came from some one particular use case, often things like server metrics, and people's needs are much broader than just server metrics. So we actually thought there was this, and, and so far what we're seeing is there is this important area that's somewhat missing from what people had before. So let's take a step back. So you described, so classically people will take uh, uh, data from uh, from sensors, right? So in the IoT scenario, ingest, mm-hmm. maybe using Kafka, have mm-hmm. a stream processing system, maybe like Spark, and then they put it on a NoSQL database maybe like Dynamo or Cassandra or something like that. So I'm assuming you guys did something like that, but then you found that people wanted to ask questions that you couldn't answer. Is that is that right? Basically, uh, you wanted to support analytics. Yeah, so it's funny that you mentioned that that hypothetical architecture because we used exactly a lot of those same things. You know, we had a REST endpoints, we had client libraries, which allowed you to run on a whole bunch of different platforms. And people were sending data from either the device, some hub, or even from their own cloud. And our REST endpoint would talk to Kafka. Kafka, we allowed it to be kind of really smoothly tied into both alerting, but also richer stream processing with Spark, (laughs) with Spark streaming. 
And then we would ingest all of the output streams, either the raw or the processed, into a time series database. And, you know, the... So, so, so for most people, that's enough. Right. Well, and that's what we hoped for. And you know, in the beginning, we weren't setting to we weren't setting out to build our own time series database. You know, as a uh, as a startup, you'd often want to use open source software when it works for you. You know, our goal wasn't to when we were building IOBeam, our goal wasn't to build the time series database. It was just to build this platform that was useful for other people. You know, somewhat as a platform as a service. And it just didn't. Unfortunately, the we we kind of it fell down when it came to the time series database part. There would be, you know, so a lot of the time series databases, particularly in the market now, are column oriented um, because that allows you to do very fast aggregations on a single column. So, for example, if you have collecting from a sensor and you might be collecting a whole bunch of different data, you might be collecting sensor data like temperature and humidity. You yeah, might also... you're, you're thinking in terms of metrics, so then naturally you go, well, I'll just store each metric in a column, right? Exactly. And, you know, other you might also collect other uh, uh, kind of like device ops metrics like CPU load and free memory and and, you know, various things, both kind of one is kind of product oriented and one is more kind of device or, or DevOps oriented. As you point out, uh, if you talk to uh, a typical data engineer, they'd say, well, yeah, time series that has to be in a column. Right. And so, well, all of these things, to be fair, you know, timescale DB also allows you to define a schema. And, you know, each of these different metrics could be in their own column. There's a difference between what are known as column-oriented databases and traditional SQL databases, which are row-oriented. And that's somewhat the, the ways that they scored on disk. That is, are all the values in a row stored contiguously on disk? That's traditionally. Or in a column-oriented database, uh, even though you might, you know, you might have every metric or if you have a bunch of metrics belong to the same row, they're actually going to be, be stored almost separately. So it's like almost every column becomes its own table. And so, so if, you, if you wanted to ask a question of one metric, you'd, be, fi- really you'd be fine. You'd be fine. Yeah. So if you want to say something like, you know, what is the average CPU over an hour? You know, that's really efficient for that because all the CPU metrics are stored you know, one right after one another on disk or even on memory. And so that becomes efficient. But if you and there's so many, there's so nowadays there's so many tricks for what they do to optimize these columns too, right? Yeah, there's various compression ways that you use uh, that column-oriented database use for that. You know that amount of column data actually gets compressed, you know, further down. And a lot of the NoSQL databases that people often think about for time series uh, are column-oriented. So uh, Cassandra and um, Influx and uh, Vertica, some some commercial databases, and, and so a lot of these and Prometheus. So there's some there's some also. I don't know if you found this, but there are some time series databases that uh, use uh, search. Yeah. So uh, um, engines, right? Like Elasticsearch or yeah. Solar. So Elastic, which Elasticsearch, which was originally built on Lucene, uh, you know, at its core, it's kind of the search interface, and that initially was particularly good for logs when you often would actually even want to search for strings inside log entries. So, you know, your data might not just be metrics, but you might have a server log with some error message, and you might even be trying to do some type of search or regular expression inside that, that log entry. But, you know... That- so so for, for those who don't follow this space closely, so put, put uh, uh, Lucene in... in- similar technologies in the context of this row column 
uh, dichotomy? So uh, I think so. Th- they do something a little bit different, um, and you know, they build these. A lot of what they're doing is building these things they call inverted indexes on top of uh, the strings. Uh, and so a lot of that basically moves towards moving, you know, storing a lot of things in memory. That said, you know, Elasticsearch, for example, one of what I think you were thinking of that in particular, you know, they've, they've now expanded a lot of their, a lot of their, their offerings. Um, but, but at a high level, you know, a lot, these things are, a lot of these are designed for fast column scans or even inverted index for string, string searches. And kind of are, are, are traditionally are really in a different space than a lot of traditional databases. So even if even if these uh, other uh, technologies like uh, Elasticsearch and these column-oriented databases support SQL, they're still not able to uh, do the types of queries that your customers were asking. There's two problems. One is if you look at a lot of them, a lot of them, a lot of these offerings, a lot of them either offer that something they call SQL-like, or they define their own language. So Cassandra, for example, defines CQL. CQL. It sounds often a lot, but, but it is different. There's two limitations of this. One is that it's not just that the, the syntax is a little bit different, that you force users to relearn. And you know, a lot of people know SQL. <laughs> it's, a, it's an old, well-understood language. It's that often they can't support certain functionality in ways that would not you would not expect at first. So for example, uh, or that if they do, they support it in a very inefficient manner. So for example, um, one of the things, what I was starting to say is columns make it really easy and really and, and fairly efficient to scan a single column. So if all you want to do is, is take the average of the CPU, that's efficient. But if you want to ask a question, you know, this is called a rich predicate. A predicate is that where clause in SQL. If you want to ask a question like, tell me the average temperature of all devices where their CPU is above a certain threshold or their free memory is below something, you know, or you could ask the converse, you know, tell me the CPU load of, of things with, a, with you know, high, uh, uh, too many errors and their temperature is above a certain amount. Because when something seems wrong, you know, the, the device starts overheating and whatnot. That is actually internally to those databases that each of those where clause is a different t- column almost a different table that the database needs to scan and then do a join on. So, you know, while a column-oriented databases might be very efficient for just rolling up a single column, if you want to ask anything richer, it becomes a lot more expensive. And in some of these databases, they, those where clause, they don't have indexes for those where clause. So anytime you ask a question, it actually takes a full table scan. So, you know, if, if only 1% of devices have a high CPU, and you say, tell me all the statistics where the device has a high CPU, in some of these time series databases that lack this indexing on, 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 on columns, on numeric columns, that actually scans all of the data, not just the 1%. When if you have something like Timescale or something that could build these efficient secondary indices, we could quickly focus in on the important data. And so the only thing we need to touch is that 1% of data, not all the data. By the way, to what extent... Uh, when we're talking about time series during this discussion, to what extent are we talking about? Is it uh, are you 
uh, folks start getting streams? Yeah. So this is a this is a funny question of what uh, what is time series data anyway? By by the way, the reason I asked this is uh, internally here uh, I was uh, talking to our editors and I kept uh, referring to real time when I actually meant streams. As yep. you know, sometimes real time does may yep. not even yep. involve streams. Yeah. I mean, we we. Don't, time series is not only limited to real time. And in fact, you often use time series data in often three very different contexts. One is somewhat operationally, or you know, this is dashboards. You want to know really almost in real time what's happening in your service, in your devices, on your, on your network, with your users. And you want to be able to like ask queries almost in real time. You could do this so with... Th th these are streams. Well... <laughs> Streams is a funny word. Um, could be. But, could, unbounded. Yeah, these are, unbounded. this is this data that keeps coming in, that, that continues to come in. Coming. And I yeah, think yeah, the key yeah. point is that you want to, typically one way to think about it is um, you're often really asking a question about a fairly narrow window. You know, what's, give me data of things that happened in the last second, in the last minute. What's trending? Exactly. What's trending now? What are the top, what are the top N items? Correct. Correct. Well, that's a that's a. I think the key point here is what is the top n items in the last x seconds or x minutes. The reason I bring up streams to begin with is there's in uh, among the people who work on streams, they make a big point about technologies being able to do streaming joints. Right. So let me just say one thing first. So one thing you want to do is is kind of this real time, fairly narrow window. But also with a lot of time series data, you might compare that. You you want want to ask more questions about historical data. So, and again, this is not thinking about the technology, but thinking more about the business use case. You know, one thing is I want to know within a yeah, few like, seconds. Yeah, like uh, what, what, what is the top, what are the top items over the last 10 minutes and what was it in, uh, a year ago? Right, so there, that is joining basically some real-time data against historical. And so there you'd want to have support from your time series database to be able to make efficient historical queries. But I think what you're getting at is there's other use cases where you might, for example, think about if you're directing traffic. You might want to know in real time, when do I turn the, the red light? Should I switch it to green or should I keep it red a little bit longer? Uh, but you might also, on a longer time scale, let's say every hour or every 15 minutes, you might have another control loop that is trying to ask questions like, how do I actually direct my fleet? How do I route my buses or my vehicles around a city? or to handle the type of traffic. You might actually be based on, you might also be making more long-term planning, which is often done by a di very different team in a company who might be wanting to look at, you know, week by week or monthly data in order to make longer-term decisions about the future. So the interesting thing about a time series database, and, and this is what we found even with some of our customers, is sometimes that data starts in one part of your organization and what, different parts of your organization quickly find a use for. And if we actually go back to what I said was, I started to talk about, you asked me about, you know, what is the problem with SQL? One of it is it's not efficient. You know, some of these SQL-like systems are not efficient or column stores are not efficient for richer queries. Some of them is that you can't actually make certain queries. So some of these time series database will let you group by time, but not by some other type of things, by like, by which fleets, you know, which cars, which vehicles, which users. So they they limit in the type and the richness of the query language compared to SQL. And one of the reasons that's really bad is because as your data finds use across your organization, you would like you have all these existing tools that speak SQL. It's not just a human, you know, typing in 
uh, SQL to a command prompt. It's also your BI tool. It's also your visualizing tool, your tableau. You know, tableau. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, even forget about the, set aside the SQL aspect of it. It's just the 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 richness of the business question. Right, and and right. and and sometimes those people who are asking questions actually. Some of them know SQL already, so you don't have to retrain your org. But some of them don't aren't actually typing in SQL. Some of them are are using existing tools. And so if you have a database that only speaks something SQL-like and doesn't actually speak SQL, then those existing tools often can directly work with it. And you would have to integrate them. You'd have to build special connectors. And so that was one of the things we, we wanted when, when we set out to build Timescale. We, we wanted to give the appearance that this looks like just, it just looks like Postgres. It just looks like a traditional relational database. So if you have any of those existing tools and business applications, they could just speak directly to it as if it's a traditional database. It just happens to be much more efficient and much more scalable for time series data. So going back to streams, so I'm assuming then Timescale does support kind of the streaming workload. We look like a uh, a SQL database that you could ingest data at fast rates to and you know issue SQL statements to that you know you could get um, the time between when you insert data and when the data being queried is on the order of uh, milliseconds. So we are not ourselves a streaming engine, let's say like Spark would be. You don't write to, you know, right, you don't right. write Scala code against us. Uh, you write SQL. And if you could support that, and, right. and SQL is a rich language. It supports windowing statement and supports this whole, you know, this this rich definitions of queries over windows. Well, you, 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 can, you can insert, you can load a lot of data. Uh, fast in a stream. You could load data, you could load it continuously. and But unlike, again, unlike some of these column-oriented, we don't, it's not that we just support bulk load. So some of what are sometimes called OLAP databases, not not to try to make this more complicated, but some right, of these right, OLAP right, right. online analytical processing databases have this model of bulk load a lot of stuff. Historically, it was like overnight and pre-compute a whole lot of stuff. So when you actually query yep. it, it's quickly. We allow you to individually write, you could write you know, lots of rows to us at once, lots of data, you know, 10,000 rows at once, and we'll do that efficiently. You could write to us row by row, and we'll do that efficiently as well. So what about streaming joins? Um, what do you mean by that? So I have a stream, and then I'm going to join it against a st static table. Yeah, so... Like my customer record. All right, so, um, you know, the reason I mention that is typically people are alluding to streaming joins because they're actually building a stream processing system that they only deal with a certain amount of data cached in memory, and they want to connect that to an external database for their historical data. And so when they're talking, and often when you, when you hear people talk about streaming joins, it's beca partially because they're not actually a database themselves. So Timescale is a database, and we support... Actually, a lot of them, almost all of them who talk about it are Right, exactly. And so there, <laughs> I knew what you meant by streaming joins, but I kind of wanted to get you, you know, to lead you along in that direction. You know, we are, you know, we're a database. You could send data to us in real time, and we, uh, you could perform relational joins inside, our, in, inside the database. And again, this is quite nice because, you know, what we find with NoSQL databases is that people, you know, this wasn't just us when we built this. This was, you know, a lot of people that we, we speak to. They store their time series in one database and then store their, you know, business logic or user account information in another database. And, you know, they push this problem onto the application writer. And with us, it's just a relational table. You could issue what looks like a normal join to the database and it just works. So in essence, actually, you folks started out in IoT, but then what you ended up building actually 
could power kind of business analytics and business decision making. Yeah, so that's in some sense why we in some sense changed the focus of the company a little bit because we realized that what we built was you know, very useful. There was something that we, we didn't find an equivalent on the market and we saw a real need. And the more we talked to people, the more we realized that while this is very useful for IoT, you know, there's many areas that it's also useful for, you know, business analytics, logistics, event data, even for, you know, mobile and web, even server metrics. There's lots of applications, financial data, ad data. There's lots of applications that use time series data and I think would benefit from a scalable, you know, relational database like TimeScale. So the people who talk about uh, uh, in, in the NoSQL world, right? So a, a big topic, of course, is consistency versus eventual consistency and all these kinds of things. Uh, uh, what do you think about all of uh, about uh, uh, those types of requirements? So I, I think there I think there are some interesting points there. I mean, I uh, you know a lot of my my research wearing my academic hat was certainly exploring the area of consistency and availability. In fact, some of the, I think we were like the first designed, myself and one of my former students designed one of the first protocols that offered scalable causal consistency for data sets. So, you know, this is like the, the cap theorem, which I think you're referring to says, well, partitions, yeah. the network can happen. And the question is, your, your database ultimately has to be opinionated. Is it going to give up uh, availability in order to achieve strong consistency? Or is it going to give up strong consistency in order to provide availability? And people thought that the, you had to basically give up all consistency and, and adopt so-called eventual, which really means no particular no well-definition <laughs> of consistency. And what we're able to show is, in fact, you don't need to give up that much. You could give up, um, you know, adopt something called causal consistency, which is somewhere between eventual and, and strong, which is also called linearizability. And there's a long history going back, you know, 30 years and and possibly I think I think Stonebreaker has very colorful language to describe what eventual consistency Yeah. Well the database means. I mean it gets even more complicated. I don't need to go into this because the database the database world and the and the systems world and the distributed computing world are actually two different models and they all have different slightly different definitions partially because databases always cared about transactions which is the relationship between yeah. two items when these definitions of strong consistency and eventual are only with respect to a single item um, because they were actually developed for distributed shared memory systems back in the multi-computer era now i'm going on this tangent one of the reasons i mention this is one of the reasons that uh no databases can scale is because they basically give up on transactions. Um, they don't. They don't at least support transactions uh, across multiple nodes. And it's those distributed transactions which turn out to be fairly expensive if you want to achieve them in a strongly consistent fashion. Uh, I think you started asking about needs, and and I think it really depends on your application. And it's actually been a kind of exciting time over the last five years. We start have we've started to see you know all this interesting work in trying to bring some rigor to both kind of eventual consistency and also really how can we build strongly consistent systems in more efficient manners. You know, Google Spanner is one example, and I, and and I think it's an interesting time there. It's also the case that when we're doing time series data, however, is that our needs are different. So a lot of these problems arose from the you know when I I mentioned transactions, these started when databases were used for like banks where. You thought you want to be able to like, you know, withdraw money from one account and put in another account. And what we find is that these type of transactions, you don't need them in a lot of the time series workloads you have. You know, it's more that you're bringing in events and you want to 
somewhat record these events, it's less that, or, or record these metrics, it's less that you're trying to atomically update different parts of your database in single transactions. So you, earlier you talked about column stores and what they're strong at and what they're not so strong at. So obviously there's no free lunch. Uh, so what would you say you give up when you go on, uh, you adopt a row-oriented uh, storage system? The two main ways that column stores are better is that if you are accessing uh, single column data or that you'll actually be able to query that much faster because you'll ultimately need to read fewer things to disk. You have subsequently less memory pressure on just reading that one column as opposed to the whole row. Uh, and correspondingly, you could compress that data better in a single column. So I think if, you, if storage is really at a premium, um, column stores get you more compressibility um, than row stores. And then they allow you to do single column rollups faster. On the flip side is if you want something more general purpose that will also work better in a wide variety of cases, including a lot of complex predicates, then row stores could actually even be more performant. And one of the, it depends, I mean, there's also another kind of key thing about this compressibility is that um, a lot of times column stores A require a lot more memory to do the type of indexing they will want to on that column. So, you know, you might be getting better disk compression, but you'll actually be, you know, using a lot more memory, which, you know, turns out to be, you know, 20x more expensive than flash. Yeah, yeah. Ma ma that, this reminds me, many, many years ago, uh, I had a conversation with the people uh, who were doing Sybase IQ. Yep. I don't know if you remember Sybase, Sybase yeah, IQ. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, there were so many arcane things about indexing. Yep. And, well, I mean, you get a lot of efficiency, but the, 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 there's actually a thing I, I want to say about timescale is it's not just that, you know, we're, it's not like we're just, just Postgres or, or something with a couple queries on top of it. You know, we have, and I, I talk about that in a bit in my recent blog post, we have looked, if you look carefully at IoT workloads, they have some peculiar aspect to them. They're mostly insert to latest time interval. And, you know, we basically have done all this multidimensional partitioning so that, you basically keep all the recent intervals in memory. And so a lot of the reasons why row-based storage becomes less efficient because you need to swap the disk a lot go away with um, timescale and we're able to achieve much higher performance both at insert and query time than a traditional row-based database. So time series is uh, very special, right? Because in because as you describe, you're almost it's like a log, right? You're appending at the end of the log. Exactly. Right? So the whole reason we're able to do this is having to do with the the characteristics of the workload and the fact that you know these new entries come in, it's sensor data, it's metric data, it's event data, and they're with respect to you know recent time intervals. They don't always have to be exactly in order. Some could be slightly old, but it's not like you know you have a year's worth of data. You know you're you generally getting stuff within the last hour or within the last day. You're not often getting stuff from six months ago, and so that allows you to think about how do you want to design all of your storage. And so typically, people do all this partitioning for scaling out, that is putting, you know, running data on many nodes. We, in fact, do it both for scaling out, but also even for scaling efficiently on one node, because that allows us to kind of keep the hot stuff in memory while all these indexing we're talking about. If you want to do traditional indexing on a relational database, that would basically keep swapping back and forth to disk. And we could basically keep that all efficiently in memory. So what's the relationship between Timescale and Postgres, if I'm already using Postgres? So Timescale is implemented as an extension on Postgres. 
Uh, Postgres actually really gives you this rich capability to kind of tie into its query planner and its execution engine. So the nice thing is we actually could install on your even existing Postgres databases. You know, you just add us to us as an extension to your database. And, uh, you know, with kind of one command, define, give us a normal, what looks like a normal table schema. And with one command, basically tell us that this is a special thing called what you call a hypertable. And so from all of your interactions, it's going to look like a single table. But actually, under the covers, we're doing all this partitioning both by time and space, and we're doing this distributed query optimization and all these things. The key thing, the, the, the neat thing, though, is from the outside, it looks just like Postgres. So you could you know, connect to it like, just like it's one big Postgres table, even though it might be many internal tables over one server, many, in fact, tables over many servers. And you can manage it like it's Postgres. And so you, you, if you're a Postgres DBA, it, you can kind of peel back the covers and internally see what's happening, run, explain, see how we're doing this query planning and optimized query planning on, uh, on these uh, multidimensional ta- partitions that we're doing. So it's very familiar, and yet, yet you get this kind of performance, bo- both performance and also these new kind of time-oriented functions that we're adding for free. And how does time scale relate to the rest of the Postgres ecosystem? Because there's so many... Uh... Uh, things that are available to a Postgres user? Yeah, so many in many ways, it's very complementary. So, for example, Postgres has rich support for many different types, including things like geospatial data. Um, some of those include, for example, geospatial support is through the PostGIS. Is that the Joe Hellerstein stuff uh, back in the day? It might be. I'm <laughs> sure he's been involved in a lot of stuff. Uh, I, don't, I don't think... I didn't know PostGIS was him, but you know you could install our extension together with something like PostGIS. So you could get our scale of your time series data, but part of your data, the way you query it, could be using the GIS extensions. Uh, and so, so we we play really well with a lot of that ecosystem, and it, it's actually a very nice community, and and it, it kind of goes well together. The other thing what you're talking about, you know, there's two ways people have done this in the past. One, they have forked Postgres if they want to like change the backend. Um, and so those, unfortunately, it's just Green Greenplum and Aster. Uh, Greenplum did that. Uh, I think Aster did that uh, back in the day. Um, I don't. I don't. I don't remember exactly if, if Aster Data did that. Um, but there's many other examples of forks. The, the the difference, of course, is they diverge from kind of mainline Postgres. Um, but because we're just an extension, we sit on top of existing. You could install mainline, and you know, as more interesting functionality gets added to Postgres and upcoming Postgres 10, a lot of new interesting functionality, we'll be able to leverage that um, with timescale. So it's still early days for the company. You were originally targeting IoT. Uh, So to the extent that you can talk about it, so what areas or what verticals, what use cases are you seeing interest? I think the interesting thing is we're, we're, we're actually seeing interest in a lot of the different areas that we thought, which is kind of supports our you know thesis of why it made sense to kind of go broader you know certainly the with iobeam we 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 offered a hosted platform um you know that we had different companies some with you know tens of thousands of different iot devices smart home um industrial send data to our platform and then they're in the back end using uh using uh the timescale database as part of that platform but now that we're open sourcing it, we're starting to see, we're also seeing interest from, from IoT companies, um, but also logistics, 
some things for server monitoring, something for finance. So I think I think it's very interesting. You know, we have this this hypothesis that you know, and we heard this again and again actually when we talked to I, to IoT companies even that you know Postgres is now this you know great thing that everybody likes. And they would say, well, I, I, I started collecting a little bit of data. You know, I'm not going to use your, pl- this is IOB, I'm not going to use your platform right now because I'm just, you know, I'm just throwing in a Postgres database and I don't have that much data. And eventually we find out they're like, well, I outgrew my Postgres database. And so then I had to like, I don't know, switch to Cassandra or something. And, you know, it gets me scale, but I don't like it as much for other reasons. And so our, our story for that, and I think why Timescale is interested is that you don't need to move off Postgres to allow your system to scale. And so if you're already using Postgres, that's great because you can continue to use it as your, as your needs grow. Speaking of finance, actually, the, that's the one area where people, when they hear the word time series, they think about finance. So are you, are, uh, what kinds of uh, interests are you getting from finance? Is it uh, uh, Wall Street? Um, you know, it's, it's, there's things on Wall Street. There's various type of you know, insuring, you know, risk, risk assessment companies. Finance itself is a is a is a broad field, obviously, and big, and yeah, the yeah, needs yeah. differ, and often they differ by by where they are. You know, I was talking about when you were talking about streaming data before is is what their real time needs are. So you know, there's this whole area of finance with high speed trading, high frequency trading, and there they're now sub microsecond. You know, I've I've I know people building FPGAs oh, right, right. that are they call tick to trade right, right. less than one microsecond. You know, we are not operating at all in that in that yep, world. Yep, yep, yep. Um, then there are other things that you are basically just looking at equity tick data, and you want to make you know not some microsecond, but you want to make um, relatively near time stuff. And I think a lot of that is very useful for the time series database. Then there are other areas where you, for example, risk assessment, want to make decisions, be, being able to look back in time with temporal relations when what was known at what time. And I think that we will ultimately be able to add a value there, but there are certain functionality that uh, is unique to that space that you know we, we, we still need to build out. So it seems like uh, one of the things that I'm taking away from this conversation is uh, you know you can you can use a general purpose tool to tackle time series, but uh, uh, you folks have decided to specialize, build a special a specific purpose database for time series and uh, that has gotten you uh, far in terms of the time series use case but uh, so someone else with a different type of data may consider building a a specific purpose uh, database for that uh, different type of data I don't know like geospatial data I don't know yeah so I mean it's very much the case that our we have optimized our architecture. We've designed our architected our, our our system for time series data. If you are primarily concerned with geospatial, you know there are other architectures that might make sense. That said, a lot of times, you know, you are a lot of times your geospatial data has uh, you know time kind of time oriented data. So those actually what we built probably makes sense as there as well. You know, I I would. I, I would, the only thing I would kind of maybe nitpick a little bit in the way, you know, describing what we did was, you know, we figured out the way to make a tried and true database work very efficiently for time series data. Uh, while on the flip side, if you look at a lot of the custom NoSQL databases, it's not just that people are using general, no, uh, you know, general Mongo or general Cassandra, they will actually often perform quite poorly for time series data. People are building kind of specialized 
time oh, series. Yeah. No yeah, there's sequel. a bu- there's a bunch of there's a bunch of those and built on top of each base in Cassandra. There and and even people who started from scratch. And um and and I think that you know the one of the things that we have is that you know we you know we say you know we say that we stand on the shoulder of giants. We sit on this you know this entire ecosystem of Postgres. Which means there's Plus years, years and years of just rock solid. Yeah. So you get two things. One is, you know, we like to say that you want your database to be boring. You know, you don't want to you want to experiment with your product. You don't want to experiment with an unreliable database. So we sit on the on the shoulders of 20 years of rock solid reliability for Postgres. But also we inherit the entire ecosystem. So you don't have to worry about writing a connector for everything about, is this tool going to work? You know, do my DBAs know what this does? Is it going to be some very funny corner case that hasn't been evaluated? You know, while we're a, a newer database, you know, we are, you know, in some sense, probably much more reliable than some, quote, new databases that have been around longer. So uh, classic question, if the database is open source, how does the company make money? <laughs> so, so I think I think by now there's probably a pretty, you know, if you look at companies like Mongo and Elastic and and others, you know, there's this pretty data bricks even in Spark. Um, or I, I, I guess uh, data stacks. Data, well, no, data Sp- uh, data bricks with Spark, data stacks with Cassandra. You, you know, there's kind of. But the da- data bricks, I distinguish. Oh, full full disclosure, I'm an advisor to okay. data bricks. I should say full. Uh, full data bricks, I I distinguish because they're cloud. Gotcha. I would they're, say. Full disclosure: uh, One of the co-founders of Databricks was my former uh, student. Oh yeah, uh, Patrick Wendell, a former guest. Yeah, one, one of the. I'm, I'd like to say he's one of the best undergrads I've had. I don't know. Maybe they'll offend others, but um, true nonetheless. Um, so I, I think by now there's you know this kind of known way to make open source work, and that is you know you also have some features that are um, really enterprise o- open, open core. core. But open. you know it's important that we. I think that you know we want to still make the open core part, the open source part, um, really a, a powerful tool. You know we don't want to kind of cripple. Uh, we 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 certainly don't plan to cripple the database like some you know commercial databases that release a you know a open source version that is you know not really that usable. Um, but I think there's still a lot of features that are really unique to the enterprise that that will be valuable. And also you know like like data data bricks does you know there are various hosted version and, and, and systems around that hosted version that could make it kind of the best way to you know, use this database. So are there any uh, hardware developments that will impact, uh, what, for example, what you guys do, uh, time series databases? For, I'm thinking probably like this uh, non-volatile memory SSDs and, and things like this. Um, so there are... Uh, so there, there are, you know, with every generation of new memory storage architecture, this often has some impact on the way we build storage engines. So, for example, one of the reasons why you mentioned it was kind of log log structured in the way you write, um, SSDs actually happen to um, make various log based storage much more efficient um, because it turns out that SSDs writes at the at the page level on the SSD, so you must always have to write AK at once. And so, various ways you could think of structuring your database makes that uh, makes that more efficient. We actually think about that a lot in how we organize our data, um, and this is one of the reasons why, at scale, you know, we see something on like on a single node a 15x insert rate compared to vanilla Postgres is because the way often we use this data and use memory is much more efficient because of the 
peculiarities of the underlying hard drive or SSD. I think there are some new memory technologies coming down the pipeline that's going to cause people to rethink a little bit about how you do paging in databases. But, you know, these are often, a lot of data is purely a cost space trade-off that, you know, you could today get an in-memory database. And for a lot of queries, it's faster. But like I said, you know, memory is probably 100x more expensive than disk. So often we, and, and similarly, part of these new non-volatile memory architectures, they are certainly um, significantly more expensive than, uh, than disk. So I think if you look at the general trend, it will be some time for um, the kind of cost curve changes. And by that time, there is various things you could do in the back end to make more traditional databases take advantage of them. So I agree with you. I think uh, you want your database to be boring, but I'm sure uh, the life of a startup isn't boring. So I'm sure th- <laughs> uh, uh, to that end, I'm sure there's a lot of things on your roadmap yep. that uh, that uh, you you folks are wanting to work on. So uh, at a high level, what are some of the things that... Uh, uh, current and future users of timescale uh, can look forward to over the next year? Yeah, there's kind of three things. The version that we open sourced uh, about two months ago was actually the single node uh, server. Um, so, you know, this actually does, like I said, even scales better than than even running Postgres. So if today all you're running is a single Postgres, this will give you something like 15x uh, insert performance and better query performance. Um, we are also working on the clustered version. Uh, in fact, the, it's interesting because unlike most systems where you, where clustering and single node are very different, we almost do single node in a clustered format. We have lots of partitioning, lots of parallel query optimization. So it's actually not that architecturally. It's it's kind of very similar on running on one node and multiple nodes. But that is certainly what, what what's the timetable of that. I don't know if I certainly within the next year, like you said. Um, I don't know if exactly I want to, you know, know, you know, say how many months or how many quarters it's going to be. Um, the other two things is we we're making it easier to have better support for server metrics. So if you don't have to want to think too much about schemas, uh, we're thinking a lot about how to make it easier so you could just start throwing data at us. And we could, you know, not make you have to predefine all of your schemas before you start. Uh, your yeah, schema schema management can be annoying. Yeah. People don't realize that Postgres and MySQL have rich support for JSON. Sometimes even a much more powerful way than some of the NoSQL databases. It does constraint validation, and now obviously we have to look at the NoSQL and say, you know, the reason these things got backported into into Postgres is because of the you know, apparent thing, you know, the fact the apparent growth of NoSQL databases and why people like that, you know, but there is already rich support for, for things like JSON in, in Postgres and think about how we make that a lot easier. Uh, and the third thing is, is increase the kind of native support for really time-oriented features. So things like time bucketing, interpolation, various things which are much more about time-based analysis. Uh, and, and, you know, that is kind of an extension of, of basic SQL that will run inside the database. So an important but sometimes overlooked aspect of open source and software in general, of course, is documentation and training and things like this. So where are you, where are you folks on uh, documentation and training? Well, two answers. One is that, you know, certainly you can check out our docs, docs.timescale.com. Um, hopefully you find it, you know, easy to use. And, you know, we've, we've tried to make a, a bunch of ways to install it, you know, via Git, Docker, Brew, you know, RPMs, you know, so a whole bunch of different ways where it 
really to make it easy to install. It, it, it's kind of, in terms of training, we're kind of this funny thing because you ask, well, what's your query language? And our answer is SQL. SQL. And you say, well, <laughs> and then, well how, do you, how do you pull it back up? And we're like, administ- well, go then, check out Postgres. So, <laughs> yeah, administration administration is Postgres. Exactly. So, uh, you know, we'll certainly, you know, we're certainly writing more. We'll, we'll, you know, check out our, we post this stuff on our blog and how to use it. But a lot of it is just like, you know, SQL, you know how to use timescale. And we, that's a powerful thing. So that's 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 one revenue avenue that's not available. It's too easy to use, Mike. <laughs> well, actually, and to be, to be actually, <laughs> let me actually say one point about that. You know, new databases are trying to put a SQL layer on top of it. You know, I was talking about how often they only are SQL-like, but there's a very different between a database also saying we're SQL compatible and we are just Postgres. Because, you know, you could put a SQL compatible layer on top of HBase. But you still need to manage it with HBase right. and HDFS and Zookeeper and blah, 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 blah. Right. It's very different right. to say, not only do we look like Postgres or SQL to the user, but we manage, we are Postgres from the perspective of the DBA. And you know that's a very different thing. Cool. Well, this has been great. We look forward to uh, watching your guys' development over the next year. Perfect. You can follow Mike Friedman on Twitter at Michael Friedman. Thanks for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe and rate us through iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud and never miss an episode.